0: What you're about to listen to is part three of a five-part series on the Crimean War. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, you're going to be kind of lost, so I recommend that you do so. If you're good, I'm good. On with the show. The year, 1854. The place, the Crimean Peninsula. Four armies are locked in a bloody struggle around the fortress city of Sevastopol. But when they collide at Balaclava and Inkerman, it is the soldiers, not the generals, who decide the fate of empires. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. <laughs> Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 29, Crimea Part 3, The Jaws of Death. Man oh man, y'all, we are here at one of the most dramatic points in military history. Yes, drumroll please, it's the Charge of the Light Brigade. And we will talk all about it today, but not just the Charge. No, today is the climax of the Crimean War, with three major engagements that will change the face of warfare. The Siege of Sevastopol, the Battle of Balaclava, and the Battle of Inkerman. And guys, I am amped up for this one. I want to get something out of the way right here before we get any deeper. Any of these battles could be an episode on its own. Inkerman in particular is a very complicated battle, lots of moving pieces. So I am glossing over some difficult tactical details. I will not modify the story. I'm not going to give you any falsehoods. But I am streamlining it. I'm going to make sure you get the experience of these battles including why they're important. Speaking of which, it's time for our quick recap. Are these recaps beneficial? Do they need to be shorter? Longer? I don't know. Let me know in the comments. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, right. So, Europe in the time of Queen Victoria was in an age of transformation, an age of industrial revolution, romantic sentiment, reformist and nationalist dreams. But a crisis in the early 1850s shattered a long period of peace, A dispute over the holy places of Jerusalem transformed into a great power struggle over the future of the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe. War erupted in 1853, with the Ottomans fighting the Russian Empire of Tsar Nicholas I. When the Russians destroyed the Ottoman fleet at Sinopi, it brought Britain and France into the conflict on the Ottoman side. In 1854, the Russians invaded Ottoman territory, and the British and French sent troops and navies to stop them. When Russian was forced to fall back by the threatened intervention of Austria, it seemed like the war could have ended there. But the Allies decided they had to strike a blow against the Tsar by invading the Crimea and capturing the naval base of Sevastopol. In September 1854, the four armies collided on the Alma River on the Crimea. After a bloody fight, the Allies won, and the way to Sevastopol was open, or so they thought. Now, if you don't remember any of that, you might have missed a couple of weeks, and that is cool. Check out part one and part two on the feed, as well as the intro, which will give you a lot of background. So if you need to, I'll give you the chance to do that. Three, two, one. All right, y'all, let's get rolling. The latest news from the Crimea reports that this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources and images, maps, commentary is on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, one big source post for the whole series, so if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So to introduce today's episode, I want to talk about leadership. If you'll notice, each episode of this series has some sort of overriding theme, connecting the Crimean War story to the broader story of Europe in the 19th century. In part one, I showed how public opinion and the rise of the lower classes had forced multiple countries into the conflict, how the changing European society meant that the reasons for war had changed too. In part two, I showed how the armies of the Crimea were different because of their classes and societies, how the societies shaped those armies, and how this affected their performance on the battlefield. So we come to leadership. For most of European history, including the Crimean War, the leaders were the nobility, the aristocracy, the blue-blooded upper class, Their dominance was the great political issue and debate of the 19th century, the thing that caused all these revolutions and protests and repressions. And one of the big things that aristocrats did as part of their class, this was one of their inherent rights and duties, was to assume military leadership. They saw it as a right, a privilege, an entitlement, stretching back to medieval times. And this was still largely the case in the Crimea. The commanders of most armies, especially the British and Russian armies, had Lord or Prince in front of their names, Lord Raglan, Prince Minshikov. But they also had one other thing in common, and this was an almost universal record of failure. The Crimean War is famous for its leadership failures, and that is 100% true from where I sit. Throughout this series, we have seen and will see. Multiple instances of toxic command climate, incompetent leadership, and disgusting neglect for the lives of their soldiers. All of it coming from the noble officer corps who saw war as a hobby, who saw their ranks as an entitlement. They didn't have the need to be good at warfare because they were handed these positions because of their birth, because of how much money they had, or because of their connections or nepotism. But we will also see other officers. Officers who worked for their ranks, who earned their positions, who bonded with their men and adapted to the new methods of warfare. We will see these guys step up to the plate when the aristocrats fail. More than that, we will see the junior officer, the NCO, the private, take matters into their own hands when their blue-blooded leaders fail them. The Crimean War was a new kind of war. It was an industrial war, a media war, a war where the soldier and the junior leader mattered more than ever. It was the first modern war. Because the theme for today's episode is how the changing nature of warfare changed the nature of military leadership. How the baton came to be passed from these aristocratic generals and nobles to the professional soldiers, the junior officers, even the NCOs and privates. How battles went in the public eye and in reality, from being won by generals to being won by soldiers. We will see the European nobility fail, the old styles of leadership fail, and see the junior ranks take the bit between their teeth and make history on their terms. And this will culminate not in the Charge of the Light Brigade, that's one example of the failure, but in the epic Battle of Inkerman. And at the end of this episode, you should shudder when you hear that name. Today, we will continue the story of the Crimean War, We'll describe how what was meant to be a quick campaign in the Crimea turned out to be anything but, as the long and bitter siege of Sevastopol began. We will witness the Battle of Balaklava, a weird little battle on the hills and ridges of the Crimea, including the famous Charge of the Light Brigade. And we will reach the climax of the episode, heck, the climax of the Crimean War in my opinion, the massive Battle of Inkerman, the soldiers' battle, what I believe is the first modern battle. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. At the end of our story. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why in part five. And because this is an epic, brutal walk into some of the 19th century's greatest battles, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause. Send that thank you card. Call your parents. Do the thing you need to do. So mount up, sharpen your saber, hold on tight to the reins, and if I were you, don't look to the left or the right. It's only going to freak you out. Let's go half a league, half a league, half a league onward on campaign. Corporal William Jowett was a good soldier. He was born in Derbyshire on January 9, 1830, the only son of Enoch and Jane Jowett. Young William was working in the factories before he was 7 years old to make ends meet, since his father had lost his lace-making job to the Industrial Revolution and his mother died when he was 12. He bounced around the industrial towns for years trying to support his father and sisters, before finally enlisting in the 7th Fusiliers. William was 24 years old and already a corporal when he sailed to war in April 1854. His letters to his sister Susan and his diary tell us the story of a simple redcoat in the Queen's Army. Corporal William Jowett is one of our protagonists, our grunt, our soldier. He would fight at Inkerman. But first, he fought at the Alma with the 7th Fusiliers and wrote about what he saw. The enemy's loss must have been very severe, for we could hardly walk on the ground they occupied without treading on the dead or wounded. We encamped on the very ground the Russians occupied the night before. When daylight appeared next morning, we found several dead Russians around us. Some had even made pillows of them. Men in the state we were in (laughs) could sleep anywhere on anything. So the Battle of the Alma was over. What was the next move for the British, French, and Ottoman allies? They had come to the Crimea with a simple plan – defeat the Russian army, capture Sevastopol quickly, stop at McDonald's on the way back. But as the Allies looked at the carnage of the Alma, the original plan of attacking Sevastopol from the north no longer seemed like a good idea. To put it bluntly, they lost their nerve. So on September 24th, four days after the battle, the Allied High Command made a decision that decided the course of the Crimean War. Instead of the original plan of a quick attack on the northern side of Sevastopol, they would march all the way around the city in a flank march to the south. They believed that an early attack would result in high losses and that Sevastopol's defenses were weaker in the south. Besides, the southern region of the Crimea had a few good harbors that could be used as supply bases. And guys, this ended up being a massive mistake. If the British and French had attacked a few days or even a week after the Alma, the city probably would have fallen. In opting for a conventional siege and opting to place caution ahead of the plan, they lost their best chance at taking Sevastopol without heavy casualties. By being squeamish about losses in the short run, the Allies set themselves up to lose far, far more in the long run. Abandoning the original plan was a bad decision with fatal consequences because things were going down in Sevastopol. Sevastopol was a navy town of around 35,000 people. You can think of it as a Russian equivalent to Norfolk, Virginia. Its beautiful white buildings, military facilities, dockyards, and copper dome churches were in great shape, but the fortifications were not. Sevastopol's coastal defenses were powerful, but its land forts were incomplete or falling apart from neglect. They're just Hadn't been any push to get those things ready, because who would invade Russia? That would be silly, right? When news of the Alma reached Sevastopol, then, the city went into near panic. There was talk of surrender or evacuating while there was still time. And Prince Menshikov was not much help. The Nadless Wonder rode into the city after the Alma was over, looked around, and said, Yep, this city is gonna fall. I'm gonna peace. Good luck, guys. <laughs> Minshikov led the Russian army out of Sevastopol towards Bakhtisaray inland, leaving the Black Sea fleet sailors and civilians to their fate. The city's inhabitants went crazy. The army had abandoned them. The Western devils and their Turkish hordes were only miles away. They were doomed. But they weren't. The people of Sevastopol were rallied by three men, a trio of heroes, Russia's greatest leaders of the Crimean War. Admiral Pavel Nakimov, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, the hero of Sinope, a father to his men. Colonel Edward Todleben, a brilliant, innovative, downright genius siege engineer. And Admiral Vladimir Kornilov, the Black Sea Fleet's chief of staff, a fiery man with the heart of a lion. See, these guys were a new kind of Russian officer. They were sometimes minor nobility, but they weren't princes or counts or court nobles. They were military professionals who had gained their ranks through ability and merit, not connections or titles. This was common for European naval artillery and engineering officers even in the age of nobility, because they had to be technical subject matter experts. Your blue blood didn't help you lay siege lines or sight artillery or navigate the sea. So when princes and lords and dukes and czars had failed them, when their blue-blooded leaders had failed them, the trio of heroes said, we will not surrender the city sevastopol can hold and it will nakimov was the one that the sailors trusted todleben was the genius with newfangled theories of active defense but admiral kornilov was a human firework who put passion into the hearts of the defenders to some sailors he said outright if i myself give the order to retreat kill me with your bayonets To the sailors, instead of the customary health to you, his catchphrase was, If you must die, my lads, will you die? To which the sailors responded, We will die, your excellency. Hurrah! And they meant it, because they knew he meant it. The trio lit a flame under the people of Sevastopol. The admirals sunk most of their precious Black Sea fleet, with tears streaming down their faces, to block off the city's harbor, then took the guns from the ships and mounted them around the walls. The people of Sevastopol went out to repair old fortresses and build new ones. Soldiers and sailors, Russians and Ukrainians and Greeks and Jews, wives and prostitutes and single women, even children. They were all digging trenches, building earthworks, mounting guns and placing sandbags. When they ran out of shovels, they dug with boards, or the, the, the prostitutes of the city were carrying mounds of earth out to the walls in their skirts. Kornilov was everywhere, inspiring and encouraging. Todleben was everywhere, masterminding the layered defenses that would turn Sevastopol into a fortress. Nakimov managed, organized, and rallied. Sevastopol swarmed like a sea of ants. Every day was precious, every minute was necessary. The invaders were on their way. The city had to hold. So when the Allies did not assault the city immediately on September 24th, when they turned away and started marching around, the people of the city saw it as a miracle. They took every minute they had to prepare the defenses. Every extra hour, every extra day that the Allies delayed their attack on Sevastopol, the fortress was preparing to fight to the bitter end. This was why the Allied change of plan was such a terrible mistake. No one expected the defiance of Sevastopol. Corporal Jowett's Diary, September 24th. Marched this morning, early, halted on the River Belbeck. No enemy in sight, our camp in a large wood. Several men left behind today with the cholera. The Allies marched south through thick woods and high hills in the strange and alien environment of the Crimea, coming across abandoned houses and villages. The Russian inhabitants of the Crimea were fleeing, and not from the Allies. The Crimean Tatars, the Muslim ethnic group that made up the majority of Crimea's population, had risen up in rebellion when the Allies landed. They had been abused and bullied by the Russian authorities for decades, and they wanted revenge. The Tatars ravaged the Russian-majority towns and cities, and soon thousands of refugees were fleeing the Crimea. The Allied armies weren't much better about looting. British and French soldiers plundered any homes or villages they found, including the magnificent summer palace of the Bibikov family. Several of the Zouaves looted a bunch of women's clothing and put on a cross-dressing competition, which is what you do in a war zone, I guess, while others robbed every wine cellar they could find. British soldiers, when not dying of cholera or dehydration, drank themselves stupid on rum and vodka. Because if I'm going to die in the next two or three months, I guess I'm not going to do it sober. Midway through the flank march, Raglan was riding the head of his army with his staff, Lord Raglan, the British commander, when they ran into General Menshikov's retreating Russian army. The Russians almost captured Raglan, which probably would have been doing the British a favor, but they missed their chance. But the Allies also missed their chance, yet again, to pursue the Russian army. And this contributed to the toxicity in the British high command. A toxic command structure, a toxic... Environment is a major problem for any military. I've talked about it before. The ability to just get along is highly underrated when it comes to military command. And Lord Raglan's high command was rife with jealous, unhappy, spiteful leaders who hated each other, hated their bosses, and were hated by their men. And this was at its worst in the British cavalry. The cavalry division was commanded by George Bingham, Earl of Lucan and consisted of the heavy brigade, general Sir, Sir James Scarlett, and the light brigade, general James Brudenell, the Earl of Cardigan. Scarlett was a decent fellow who didn't get involved in the drama. But, you know like I'm staying out of this drama. But Lucan and Cardigan were two of the most narcissistic, incompetent, toxic leaders in the British army. Neither of them had any experience. They had earned their ranks through connections and money and titles instead of merit. Lucan was best known for being a ruthless Irish landlord during the potato famine. He was kicking starving Irish people off their homes because they weren't profitable anymore. But as a commander, he was also stubborn, clueless, lazy, and vindictive. Cardigan was a pampered aristocrat obsessed with his privilege and rank. The two men were also, um, brothers-in-law, and they hated each other, since Lucan apparently treated his wife, Cardigan's sister, like crap. These guys just, they kind of deserve each other, to be honest with you. But the apple didn't fall far from the institutional tree. The British cavalry was dominated by the nobility, extremely arrogant and obsessed with romantic glory. The men of the Light Brigade had been complaining since the war began, hey, when are we going to see some action? They kept getting disappointed. First, when the enemy cavalry taunted them before the Alma, and then after the Alma, when they failed to pursue the Russians. The British infantry were thrilled at the schadenfreude of the cavalry's frustration. One soldier said, Serves them right, bloody peacock bastards. So when the British ran into the Russian rear guard, the men of the Light Brigade were almost gnashing their teeth in expectation. Now, now, let's get them. But Lord Lucan said, eh, not today, boys. The cavalrymen were furious. They started calling him Lord Look-On. Like, I just look at the enemy, I don't actually attack them. Come on, boss, let us stab something, please. The cavalry was just off the chain. They were... If they got a chance, they were going to go into battle no questions asked. One of the angriest was a young staff officer named Captain Lewis Nolan, who had written several books on cavalry tactics and considered himself an expert. Nolan was furious at what he saw as Lucan's mismanagement of the cavalry and decided that if he had anything to say about it, the cavalry would not miss the next chance to make a glorious charge. Yes, this is foreshadowing. Hint, hint. Another symptom of the toxic culture was Sir George Cathcart, commander of the 4th Division, who was designated to take charge of the army if something happened to Raglan. This was perfect because Cathcart was jealous of Raglan, downright insubordinate and nasty, and this would only get worse. All things considered though, this toxic command climate was Raglan's fault. What he was thinking allowing Lucan and Cardigan to work together, tolerating Cathcart's insubordination, well, It would just be too mean, too ungentlemanly, to do anything about it. But a commander is ultimately responsible for the climate they create. The buck stopped with Raglan, who really should have done his job. Corporal Jowett's Diary, September 26th. March for Balaclava and take it without any trouble, with about 87 prisoners. A prettier little valley I never saw in my life. The poor people had all run away and left their homes. Ships in harbor ready to disembark the siege train. The Allies finished their march just in time, because the French commander was on death's door. The dying Marshal Saint-Arnaud left for Constantinople on a steamer, but died en route, leaving the French forces on the Crimea under the command of the competent but cautious General Francois Conrobert. Told you not to get attached to no. I mean, tragic, yes, but I don't know what anyone expected. Sending a literal cancer patient to the front line to lead an army—not a great, like not not top ten personnel management decisions of the 19th century. Now the Allied army had arrived on the southern edge of Sevastopol, and it was time for siege preparations to begin. They began to set up defensive works. The French on the left supplied from Kamiesh Bay, and the British on the right supplied from a small fish- fishing village called Balaklava. The British supply line was highly vulnerable, running almost nine miles from Balaklava to their lines in front of Sevastopol, but hopefully this would all be over soon and that wouldn't become a problem. <laughs> hint, hint. Some allied commanders wanted to go storming into the city head-on. One of them was Cathcart, who insisted to Raglan that one good, strong attack would take the city now. Raglan refused, and Cathcart filed this as another black mark against his name. In the meantime, the British and French watched the Russians working every day to make Sevastopol stronger. One observer said, They are working like bees. Women and children are carrying up earth baskets, and already the tower on the right of our lines is blocked up with a double line of earthworks, for guns. Another reason the siege was a bad idea was that the Allied army wasn't big enough to completely surround Sevastopol. They had landed an army that could take the city quickly, not a siege army. So there were still supply lines going into the city even as they prepared to lay siege. The Russians were already receiving reinforcements inside the city. This was a bad, bad sign for the future because now the Allies would be holding an elongated line that left them overstretched and vulnerable to counterattack. Nevertheless, the British and French soldiers started digging trenches, setting up batteries, building dugouts and earthworks. One day passed, then another, then a week. Hauling up the guns, building the emplacements, all that stuff took a hideous amount of time, and the soldiers were already exhausted. They'd barely gotten a day's rest since they landed, and as September turned into October, many of them were dead on their feet. Corporal Jowett's Diary, October 11th. Nothing particular since my last date except hard work, bringing up guns, planting them, and erecting batteries. The enemies send shot and shell amongst the working parties both day and night. Several have been hurt. About 1,500 soldiers came up today with guns. Expect to commence bombarding every day weather very fine today, but the last few days, previous, piercing cold. The Allies had two major problems that would only get worse with time. Number one, General Menshikov's army was still out there, a constant threat to their rear. Second, the Russian winter was on its way. This was why the Allied plan required them to take Sevastopol quickly, why invading this late in the year was dangerous. The chill wind that Corporal Jowett felt on his neck was the first sign that they were running out of time. So the new plan was simple. Assemble a crap ton of artillery around Sevastopol, bombard the city into rubble, launch an overwhelming attack, and take the city in a couple of days. The bombardment was set to begin on October 17th, 1854. The Russians knew what was coming. No one had any illusions. You could see the hundreds of guns being emplaced around the city. But the Allied foot-dragging had bought them three weeks, three precious weeks, to build bastions and redoubts and trenches and bunkers, led by their trio of heroes, Nakimov, Todleben, and Kornilov. The people of Sevastopol braced themselves for the storm. Most of the Allied officers believed that the city would fall in a couple of hours. The most pessimistic believed that it would take two or three days. And looking at the 72 British and 53 French heavy-caliber guns surrounding the town, looking at the Allied fleet hovering off the coast, it seemed inevitable. Nothing could stand against this level of firepower. At dawn on October 17th, the Allied artillery opened fire. Soon the hills of the Crimea echoed with the massive sound of hundreds of artillery pieces blasting away at each other's walls and batteries and trenches. The crashes of guns, the whistling and zinging of ricocheting shot, and the booms of exploding shells enveloped the armies around Sevastopol. Soon the smoke and the dust and the flames blinded everyone. No one could hear or see or even think. They just kept reloading and firing blindly. It was like a giant was pounding the earth with his fists. The shaking and burning and crashing was like the end of the world. The civilians of Sevastopol fled to any shelter they could find. Women carried children through smoking streets to seek shelter in basements, and old men cowered beneath tables. One civilian said,
1: I never saw or heard of anything like it before. For twelve hours, the wild howling of the bombs was unbroken. It was impossible to distinguish between them, and the ground shook beneath our feet. A thick smoke filled the sky and blotted out the sun. It became as dark as night, even the rooms were filled with smoke.
0: As the land batteries continued to fire, the Allied navies, British and French sailing vessels and even new steamships came in close to join the attack, launching mortars and bombs and shells into the forts of Sevastopol. It seemed like nothing could survive this whirlwind of fire and metal. In the midst of this hellfire, the Russian fortresses were pounded, with men falling, being blown apart and turned into mangled masses by the hail descending on them. The trio of heroes were there, on the front line, walking over corpses and making themselves seen on the bastions at the hottest points of the fight. Admiral Nakimov stood calmly at the 5th Bastion, blood dripping down his face and staining his dress uniform from a wound. Colonel Todleben organized the siege defenses, sending out repair crews and engineer teams to fix the crumbling walls. And Admiral Kornilov walked from bastion to bastion, like a salamander wherever the fire was hottest. He was leaving Bastion Number 2, the Malakov, when he was caught by an exploding shell. To the horror of the onlookers, Admiral Kornilov was nearly bisected, his lower body torn to shreds. Admiral Kornilov lived long enough to urge his men to hold the city, receive the Orthodox rites, and dictate his last wishes. Then he was gone. The trio was down to two. Over a thousand of Sevastopol's defenders died on day one. But Sevastopol fought back. The coastal fortresses fired back at the Allied fleet. In this test of wooden ships against concrete fortresses, the fortresses won, and almost every ship in the Allied Navy was damaged. The guns of Sevastopol also tore into their attackers on land, blowing up one of the French powder magazines and killing dozens, if not hundreds, of Allied soldiers. The Allies never launched their assault. They couldn't. The defenses were not destroyed. Sevastopol held. For the people of sevastopol surviving the first bombardment was a massive morale boost from this point on no one doubted that the city could hold that they would be delivered by god the tsar their own courage or all of the above the defenders would fight and suffer and die but they never stopped believing in victory kornilov was dead but his spirit lived on he was seen as a leonidas like figure a martyr by striking him down He had become more powerful than the Allies could ever imagine. For the Allies, the failed bombardment was a wake-up call. They had wanted to capture Sevastopol in a week, two weeks tops. But it had been a month, Sevastopol was stronger than ever, and they were running out of time. Because as the British and French sat in their trenches, they felt the first winds of winter blowing around their ears. Guys, this was how the next year of the Crimean War would look. This was the new reality, and will be the reality for most of the rest of this series. The Allies were stuck. Stuck in front of a defiant, fortified city. Stuck on barren ridges exposed to the elements. Stuck at the end of a long, seaborne supply line stretching back to home. And stuck with Menshikov's Russian army lurking behind them, waiting to strike and break the Siege of Sevastopol, like a hammer striking hot iron against an anvil. Tsar Nicholas I seemed to regain some of his old fire when he learned of Sevastopol's heroic defense. He wrote to Menshikov:
1: Tell our young sailors that all my hopes are invested in them. Tell them not to bow to anyone, to put their faith in God's mercy, to remember that we are Russians, that we are defending our homeland and our faith. May God preserve you. My prayers are all for you and for our holy cause.
0: The Tsar was determined to break the siege of Sevastopol. The stage was set for one of Britain's most famous military disasters. Only a week after the bombardment, the Light Brigade would descend into the jaws of death. Battle of Balaclava is one of history's most famous battles, for one big reason. The Charge of the Light Brigade, or the Poem. This may be the only thing that some folks have ever heard about this war. But the Poem ain't the whole story of the Charge, the Charge ain't the whole story of Balaclava, and Balaclava ain't the whole story of the Crimea. See, as battles go, Balaclava is much more famous than it is important. It's also just a weird battle. For one thing, it was remarkably visible, with lots of high ground and clear lines of sight. One of our heroines, Fanny Duberly, saw literally the whole battle from her position on the Sapoon Heights. It was almost like looking down into a football stadium. Balaclavas also very disjointed. It consisted of four separate, almost disconnected events, their own little dramas, which I will call Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and Act 4. There is also controversy about almost every moment of this battle. Keep in mind, at some points, this just becomes my opinion. The James Hauser version, which if you've gotten this far, I assume you're cool with. The seaport town of Balaclava functioned as the British supply base on the Crimea. A narrow, difficult road ran up from Balaclava along a ridge called the Causeway Heights. Holding this road was super important, this was the main British supply line. If they lost it, they would have to take a much more difficult road problem was, the Causeway Heights were super duper vulnerable to Russian attack. So the British set up a series of small forts along the Causeway Heights, redoubts number one through number six, and garrisoned them with Ottoman troops and a few cannon. But these redoubts were not well maintained or well supplied. When the Russian attack came, the Ottoman troops on the Causeway Heights were starving, dehydrated, and low on ammo. And most of them were Tunisian conscripts with no prior military training low-quality troops and isolated forts with low morale, unsupplied, and neglected by their British bosses. The Russians looked at this and said, bingo. The Russian plan was simple. General Pavel Leprandi would lead 25,000 men in a dawn attack on the redoubts. He would storm the Causeway Heights and send his cavalry under General Rizhov to capture Baliklava, cutting the British supply lines the Allies would be forced to retreat, and Sevastopol would be saved. The only forces the Allies had in the area were the Ottoman troops in the Redoubts, the small garrison of Balaklava, and the British Cavalry Division. Other troops were nearby, British infantry under General Cathcart and French infantry under General Bosquet, but they would take time to arrive if something went down. Now, Raglan had been receiving reports of a possible Russian attack, but he dismissed them as false alarms. He had received a lot of false alarms lately, but British military intelligence was pretty garbage throughout the Crimean War. Raglan thought it was, um, ungentlemanly and not, you know, polite to use spies or secret agents. So despite receiving reports of an imminent Russian attack, Raglan did nothing. Say it with me, y'all. Raglan, do your job. Daybreak came on October 25th, 1854, one week after the bombardment of Sevastopol. Lord Lucan and his staff were out riding when they saw signal flags rising over the Allied redoubts on the causeway heights. The signal said, imminent Russian attack. Lucan stared at it, wondering what could it mean, I told you this guy is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, before artillery fire clued them in. Yes, imminent Russian attack. It was 6 a.m., and the Battle of Balaclava had begun. This was Act 1, the Battle for the Redoubts. The Russian infantry stormed across the North Valley under the cover of Russian guns from the Fidukin Heights to the north, zeroing in on Redoubts Number 1-4. through four. These were men of the 12th Division, consisting of the Azov, Dnieper, Odessa, and Ukraine regiments. A lot of the controversy of this battle comes from this first act, the Battle of the Redoubts. Lots of British popular accounts would later claim that the Ottoman soldiers barely fought and ran away like a bunch of cowards. But that is absolutely untrue and unfair. When the time came, the Ottomans fought like maniacs, throwing back one Russian attack after another. The Ottoman troops in Redoubt No. 1 held out for an hour and a half until they were finally driven out by the Azov regiment at 7.30 a.m., leaving behind a quarter of their number dead. The rest of the Tunisian conscripts, seeing redoubt number one fall, retreated as well. Soon the Turkish garrisons of all four redoubts were running south towards Balaklava. Some would later rally and assist with later parts of the battle, including the stand of the thin red line. Others were too demoralized and battle-scarred to do anything. The Russians had accomplished their initial objective, seizing the causeway heights and capturing the redoubts. As they did so, Raglan arrived to watch the battlefield from atop the Sapoon Heights to the west. He was joined by Mrs. Fanny Duberly, wife of Captain Henry Duberly, paymaster of the 8th Hussars in the Light Brigade. Raglan ordered infantry to pull out from the siege lines and march to Balaclava, but they were still on their way. Until then, Balaklava and the British supply base were at the mercy of the Russian cavalry. Raglan, Fanny, and the staff watched as a massive cloud of Russian Cossacks descended from the Causeway Heights and rode south towards Balaklava. It was time for Act Two: the Thin Red Line. A small red-coated formation came marching out of the Balaklava defenses, a little force, only about 500 men strong. They spread out into a line of two ranks directly in the path of the Cossack charge. The spectators couldn't believe what they were seeing the traditional formation for resisting cavalry charge was a square formation not a thin little infantry line what were these guys thinking the unit was the 93rd sutherland highlanders their tartans and plumes fluttering in the breeze the 93rd was a true highland regiment enough of its men still spoke gaelic that it needed translators and at their head was general sir colin campbell commander of the highland brigade a new kind of British officer. He had no title or connections or lands. His father had been a Glasgow carpenter. Campbell had fought in Spain, America, China, and India, earning distinction. He was one of the best officers in the British army, but he had no title or lands or wealth, which explained his low rank. Campbell walked in front of his Highlanders and told them, Remember, there is no retreat from here, men. You must die where you stand. To which one of his soldiers replied, Aye, Sir Colin, we'll do that, we'll do just that. The Highlanders watched as the Russian cavalry, with a whinnying of horses and clinking of sabers, launched themselves across the open plain, headed directly for the tiny infantry unit. Fanny Duberly saw the oncoming collision from the Sapoon Heights.
1: Presently came the Russian cavalry, charging over the hillside and across the valley, right against the little line of Highlanders. Ah, what a moment! Charging and surging onward! What could that little wall of men do against such numbers and such speed?
0: There they stood. Reporter William Howard Russell of the London Times was also there. The ground flies beneath their horses' feet, gathering speed at every stride they dash on towards that thin red streak, tipped by a line of steel. Russell's words would be misquoted, and this event will be remembered forever, as the thin red line. But that steel in the hands of the Scottish Highlanders was the Minier rifle. Using the old smoothbore musket, they would only be able to fire one volley before the Cossacks were on top of them. But with the new Minier, they could engage from a much greater distance. Campbell had seen the effects of the Minier rifle at the Battle of the Alma. With knowledge of his new weapon system and confidence in his men, he stared down the Russian charge. When some men got too excited and tried to rush forward, he stopped them. 93rd! 93rd! Damn all that eagerness! Finally, when the Russians came within range, Campbell ordered the Scots to fire. The first volley caused the Cossacks to flinch the second volley caused some confusion, some stumbling. Finally, the last volley at 500 yards caused the charge to turn around and race back to the causeway heights. It was a short little engagement with honestly very few casualties. There's there's a famous painting of the thin red line, which show a bunch of Russian cavalry dying like inches away from the Highlanders, but they never got that close. But nevertheless, the thin red line had held and passed down into history as an example of steady infantry holding firm against a superior force. Campbell's faith in his men and their technology had prevailed. But as the Highlanders looked on, a new, much larger force of 3,000 Russian cavalry came roaring down the hill. The thin red line braced itself again, this time sure they would be overwhelmed. The spectators on the Sapoon Heights watched, their breath called in their throats, as a much, just this enormous clod of horsemen just comes roaring down the ridge. But then their saviors arrived. It was time for Act Three, the charge of the Heavy Brigade. The Russian cavalry suddenly came to a stop as the 600 troopers of the British Heavy Brigade came crashing over the ridge. It was like two cats meeting for the first time. The Russian cavalry just sort of looked at them, surprised, as the British came to a halt only 100 meters away and began to dress their lines like they had all the time in the world. General Sir James Scarlett rode along the line serenely, making sure his men were ready. At this point, Lord Lucan came racing up, screaming at the men to charge, Hurry up! Get them! Almost ruining the whole thing. Lucan was, as I have reminded you, thicker than concrete. But Scarlett ignored his superior. When his men were good and ready, when they were good and aligned, when everything was ready, he raised his sword, gave the charge, and led the heavy brigade uphill against the foe. General Sir James Scarlett had never led troops in the battle, but he had broken Lord Raglan's taboo and gotten several veterans of the India Wars on his staff. Scarlett was a man who knew what he didn't know and looked for people who did. The India officers had trained the heavy brigade to be disciplined and combat ready, and now it paid off. The heavy brigade, outnumbered five to one, plowed into the shocked Russians. General Scarlett was the first man to make contact, followed by the rumbling roar of the Scots Greys and the Ennis-killing Dragoons. The fourth and fifth Dragoons flanked from either side and pitched into the Russian flanks, hacking away with swords and pushing deeper into the press. The heavy brigade disappeared into the Russians almost like they were being absorbed. The melee was furious, a giant shoving match on horseback, almost a hockey brawl. The two sides were so packed together that any sort of elegant swordsmanship was gone, reduced to a lunatic chopping. Some British units hacked their way out of the Russian formation, then turned around to charge right back in. The sergeant major of the 5th Dragoons watched Private Harry Herbert fight three Cossacks at once, chopping one across the base of the neck, sending the second fleeing, and trying to stab the third. When his sword broke, he threw the hilt at the Cossack, striking him in the face and knocking him off his horse. General Scarlet himself had his helmet stove in and took five sword wounds. The screams and cuts and collisions echoed off the hills. It sounded like a car crash almost. For all this, the fighting was surprisingly non-lethal. Neither side's swords could really penetrate each other's heavy woolen coats. The British had a slight advantage due to their superior swords. Forged in the fires of the Industrial Revolution's factories, they outmatched the village-crafted swords of their foes. Only a dozen men on each side died, despite many men taking numerous sword cuts. Finally, the Russian cavalry routed, sprinting away towards friendly lines. The heavy brigade watched exhausted as their enemy retreated. The charge of the heavy brigade was over, outnumbered five to one, They had taken all of eight minutes to defeat the Russian cavalry. The thin red line in the charge of the heavy brigade had saved Balaclava. At that moment, the British infantry came marching up, led by General Cathcart's 4th Division. They were late because Cathcart had refused to acknowledge Raglan's order for almost an hour before he finally sent his troops to advance, another display of the toxic climate in the British high command. But the arrival of the British infantry prevented any further Russian attacks on Balaklava. A lull settled on the battlefield as both sides stared each other down. This should have been the end of the battle, but the honestly awesome feats of the thin red line and the heavy brigade were overshadowed, and have been overshadowed in history, by what happened next. Act 4 The Charge of the Light Brigade. The Battle of Balaclava appeared to be winding down. The infantry had arrived, the Russians had stopped attacking, Balaclava was safe. But then, Lord Raglan on the Sapoon Heights to the west spotted movement in the captured redoubts. The Russians were removing the British guns and taking them away as trophies. According to legend, the Duke of Wellington, Raglan's mentor, had never lost a British gun to the enemy. Whether this was true or not, debatable, Every British officer believed it, and Raglan was mortified at the thought of failing to live up to the legend. So he sent a message to the cavalry commander, Lord Lucan, ordering him to attack the Causeway Heights with the support of the infantry. Lucan didn't like this order. He was in a kind of a depression in the ground, he couldn't see the infantry from where he sat, and he also had done no reconnaissance. He had no idea what the battlefield looked like, because he was lazy. So he didn't know what Raglan was talking about. For him, like so many other British officers, war was a hobby, not a profession. So he just sat and ignored the order for like 45 minutes. And the more he waited, the more impatient Raglan grew. So Raglan sent a second order, the exact verbiage of which is super important, for what happened next. Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy, and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left. Immediate. This was a very unclear message, which, if you'll notice, is kind of a problem with Raglan's orders. Lord Lucan was never the sharpest tool in the shed, and this message would have confused anybody. Raglan said, prevent the enemy from carrying away the guns. But from where he stood, Lucan saw three sets of guns the Russian guns on the Fidukin Heights to the north, the captured British guns on the Causeway Heights to the south, and another set of Russian guns at the other end of North Valley. Three different sets of guns. So Lucan is looking at this message and saying, which guns? Which guns, Raglan? And give me something to work with. Now, Lucan could have, you know, made the reasonable inference from the previous order that Raglan meant the guns on the Causeway Heights. But we're, we're dealing with a guy like guys dumber than a box of rocks here. And the messenger didn't help. This was Captain Lewis Nolan, the angry young staff officer who was furious at what he saw as Lucan's mismanagement of the cavalry. The aggressive young man was like, why aren't we charging? Why aren't we charging? So when Lucan came up to him and said, hey kid, which guns is Raglan talking about? Nolan thought Lucan was just trying to chicken out again. He exploded, waving his arm and yelling. There, my lord, is your enemy. There are your guns. And to Lord Lucan, he appeared to be gesturing to the Russian guns at the far end of the valley. Cannon to the left of them, cannon to the right of them. A valley of death. So at this point, Lucan rode over to Cardigan and said, Hey, take the light brigade and charge those guns all the way over there. Cardigan said, That's stupid. That's suicide. Lucan said, Shut up. Those are orders. And Cardigan said, Fine, douche-nozzle. If this goes south, it's your fault. Two rational men could have realized that there had been a miscommunication and worked together to figure it out. You know, like reasonable people. But mutual hatred got in the way. No one thought of going up to Ragland to, like, you know, confirm the order. It would have taken five or six, ten minutes, maybe. But they all bore the blame. Lucan for being stupid and competent and careless, Cardigan for being toxic and indifferent to the lives of his men, Even Captain Nolan for caring less about the substance of an order and more about the spectacle of a glorious charge that he craved. But ultimately, the blame for what was about to happen has to fall on Raglan. It was his job to fix his command climate. His job to manage his generals and his staff. His job to make his orders clear and understood. The buck stopped with him, and if everyone below him was toxic, what did that say about their boss? Lord Cardigan formed the Light Brigade in two lines. The men strapped on their helmets, unsheathed their sabers, and stood up in their saddles, eager to finally get into the fight. Now, Cardigan might have been a crappy leader, but even he looked down that valley, sandwiched between two massive ridges swarming with Russian artillery and infantry, and he knew what it meant. He said, in a very quiet voice, The Brigade will advance. And the charge of the Light Brigade began. At first, the spectators didn't realize anything was wrong. The Light Brigade moved out, a ripple of hussars in blue and dragoons in red and white seeming to be heading towards the causeway heights. But then they began to bear left, and Raglan, his staff, and Fanny Duberly watched in horror as the Light Brigade headed into North Valley, into the teeth of the Russian formation. A low groan emerged from the crowd. They knew what it meant. It was like watching a school bus crash and there was nothing they could do to stop it. As the Light Brigade started, Lord Cardigan at its head, Captain Nolan suddenly came riding out, screaming and gesturing with his sword. Cardigan was furious, yelling at him to get out of the way, but Nolan just kept yelling. No one exactly heard what he was yelling. There were different versions. He might have been telling them to speed up, or maybe he realized that he had screwed up and was trying to fix his mistake, saying, no, no, not that way, not that way, the other way but we'll never know, because the first Russian cannon blast killed Captain Nolan on the spot, and the Light Brigade pitched past him down the valley of death. Alfred Lord Tennyson famously captured the charge in his poem, read by my wife.
1: Forward, the Light Brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die into the valley of death, rode the 600."
0: At first, the Russians couldn't believe what they were seeing. One Russian general later wondered, are they they drunk? But then they opened fire. Soon musket balls and shells were ripping into the doomed cavalry. They rode forward, seeming not to notice the shots which ripped men apart, sent horses screaming and fleeing, opened up gap after gap in their ranks. The spectators on the Sapoon Heights didn't notice the tears streaming down their cheeks, As they watched the gallant light brigade being torn to shreds french general bosquet just shook his head and said it is magnificent but it is not war it is madness one sergeant of the 11th hussars remembered horses and men were falling in every direction a man named Allred who was riding on my left fell from his horse like a stone. I looked back and saw the poor fellow lying on his back, his right temple being cut away, and his brain partly on the ground." Another trooper of the 17th Lancer saw another man die, beheaded by a cannonball, his headless corpse still holding the lance to charge for a few more meters. The Light Brigade pressed on, its horses foaming at the mouth, its men baring their teeth in silent anger, racing through the hail of shot and shell. Wounded men fell and staggered back to the rear, past the destroyed bodies of their comrades.
1: Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell. Boldly they rode, and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600.
0: Finally, the Light Brigade reached the Russian guns, Lord Cardigan at their head. One trooper described it as like riding into the mouth of a volcano. And guys, the charge kind of worked. The Russian gunners fled in a panic, and some of the troopers tried to drag away the cannons, though this was pointless. Other men of the Light Brigade continued charging past the guns and made contact with the mass of the Russian cavalry. But the Russians, who heavily outnumbered the Light Brigade, were still panicked from their encounters with the Thin Red Line and the Heavy Brigade. And at the sight of these lunatics coming over the ridge, the Russians said nope and ran like hell. The Light Brigade scattered what was left of the Russian cavalry. But at this point, the Light Brigade was a confused mess. They were all alone out here and they faced a new problem. Now they had to go back. But Lord Cardigan was no longer with them. Having delivered his brigade down the valley, he felt like, my job here is done. It was beneath the dignity of a gentleman to go hacking and slashing against Russian peasants. So he turned around and rode back on his own, leaving his brigade to fend for itself. The first thing he did when he got back was file a complaint against Captain Nolan's impertinent behavior while his brigade was dying back where he'd just been. Lord Cardigan left the light brigade to die for all he cared as long as he put it on record that this wasn't his fault. He rode back to his yacht, opened a bottle of champagne, and started making excuses. Yacht? Oh yeah, yeah, you heard correctly. Cardigan was living on his yacht in Balaclava Harbor throughout the siege while his troopers froze every day on the heights of the Crimea. It fell to the junior commanders of the Light Brigade to save themselves. When their blue-blooded earls and barons and generals had failed them, they decided that they were not going to die here. Lord George Paget of the Light Dragoons rallied what was left of the Light Brigade, and other officers gathered up small knots of men and led them back through the valley, so confidently that even the Russian cavalry sent to attack them just kind of stopped and stared as the Light Brigade passed by. They were like pushing their lances into them half-heartedly, but barely even touching them. The Light Brigade's survivors were given covering fire by a detachment of the French Light Cavalry, the Chasseurs de Frique. And with their escape, what was left of them, the Battle of Balaclava was finally over. The Light Brigade was a pitiful sight, their beautiful uniforms covered in blood and dust and gore, torn to rags, some on foot, some leading beloved horses that would have to be put down from all the wounds they had suffered. Nearly 500 horses were lost in the charge, many wounded and screaming on the field, biting at the grass and bleeding for water. That night was filled with many a groomsman's croon, followed by the sharp crack of a merciful revolver. As the sun went down over Balaclava, Fanny Duberly and her husband went out to inspect the battlefield. Other women were out there too, looking for lost husbands. Fanny and her husband were out looking for their friends, and found many of them. She could barely believe the carnage. As a certified horse girl, she didn't just weep over the men, she weeped over the broken bodies of the brave steeds that had done everything they could. Of the 661 men of the Light Brigade, 113 were killed, 134 wounded, and 45 captured, a 45% casualty rate. For all its infamy, the Charge of the Light Brigade wasn't as costly as Pickett's charge at Gettysburg in 1863, or Von Bredow's charge at Mars Latour in 1870. But it still ruined the only good cavalry force on the Crimea, and for nothing. Which is crazy, because the Charge of the Light Brigade did scatter the Russian cavalry and destroyed an artillery battery. The real mistake was in not following it up and not exploiting its costly success. The charge has gone down in history as a massive blunder, a waste of life due to miscommunication, incompetence, and command failure. And yeah, that that checks out. That is 100% what happened. If you need further proof, no one was willing to accept responsibility. Cardigan said, It is a mad-brained trick, but it is no fault of mine. He blamed Lucan. Raglan also blamed Lucan in the mild way that only he could, just saying that there had been some misconception of the order to advance. Lucan said, I do not intend to bear the smallest particle of responsibility. He blamed Captain Nolan. Nolan was dead, he couldn't defend himself, so he was the perfect scapegoat. As in all toxic command climates, no one cared about fixing the problem. No one cared about what could have been done to prevent this. The important question was, who do we blame? The truth was, they were all to blame. They had all contributed to the disaster. But as you know, I believe the buck stopped with Raglan. Corporal Jowett's Diary, October 25th. The enemy attacked Balaclava early this morning, drove the Turks out of their redoubts, Then they brought up a large force of cavalry to bear upon Balaclava, but were driven back with great loss. Our light cavalry brigade were ordered to retake the British redoubts from the enemy. In this attempt, they got cut up nearly to a man, and of course, did not succeed. Wow, he basically just said what I spent like 30 minutes explaining. Maybe this guy should be doing the podcast. Kidding. Man knows how to summarize, what can I say? The Russians celebrated Balaklava as a triumph, parading the captured British guns inside Sevastopol. The Tsar was overjoyed, claiming that one more attack would break the British army. He ordered Menshikov to prepare a final blow to save Sevastopol and win the Crimean War. Because Balaklava would not be the climax. Even the Charge of the Light Brigade wouldn't be the climax of the war. For all its fame, this battle was not the one, the one that everyone who was there would talk about, that would be written in blood on dozens of regimental banners that would cause men to shudder to remember. Two weeks after Balaclava, the armies descended into the blood, mud, mist, and hell of Inkerman. The battles of Balaclava and Inkerman are polar opposites. Balaclava is easy to describe. There are four sequential events, one, two, three, four, it's a straightforward narrative. Inkerman is a chaotic meat grinder, I'm not even going to try to describe all the various tactical nuances. Balaclava was clearly visible, you could see everything. Inkerman is famous for weather so bad that no one could see anything. And finally, Balaclava was the battle the public remembered, the famous one. Inkerman was the battle the soldiers remembered. It would be remembered by history as the soldiers' battle. On October 26th, one day after the Battle of Balaclava, a Russian infantry force stormed out from Sevastopol and launched a surprise attack on the right flank of the British line, a narrow plateau that the British called Mount Inkerman. After a short, intense little fight, the Russians were driven off by artillery fire. The British called this skirmish a victory, but it wasn't. This was a reconnaissance in force. The Russians were probing to see how strong the defenses on Mount Inkerman were. They were planning something much bigger. This small attack, which would be called Little Inkerman, should have been a wake-up call for the British. Should have been a wake-up call for Raglan that, hey, this position is really vulnerable. It needs to be strengthened. But Raglan did nothing. Raglan did not have any fortifications built. He did not send any reinforcements there. And he just didn't react to this obvious attack that revealed the weakness of the inkerman position. Prince Menshikov was under pressure from the Tsar to break the siege of Sevastopol. I've talked about this guy a little bit, but I need to give a little bit more background on the Nadlus Wonder. Prince Menshikov is a classic example of a guy who kept failing upwards. He had been a governor, an admiral, and a diplomat, and he had been bad at all of his jobs. He openly and freely admitted that he didn't know anything about tactics and never thought of himself as a general. Uh, kind of a problem when you're commanding an army. Maybe a little bit. It's like ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just <laughs> I'm just here. So why is this guy in charge of anything? I'll give you a little hint. He's not Mr. Minshikov, or even General Menshikov. Mins- He's Prince Menshikov. Minshikov had assembled over 100,000 men in and around Sevastopol. The Russians greatly outnumbered the Allies at this point in the war, and he planned to use about half of this force to try and smash the exposed British position on Inkerman and break the siege. The plan called for a two-pronged infantry attack, With one prong coming up from Sevastopol under General F.I. Soymanov, and another division from the main army under General P.Y. Pavlov. Don't worry about remembering these names. Whatever. They would approach before dawn, link up, and then a third Russian general, Peter Dannenberg, would take charge of the combined army. Dannenberg was rumored with justification to be unlucky. He had lost the first battle of the war against the Ottomans at Altenica. So of course, we only have like the best people in charge of this thing. It's a freaking superstar team over here. There were a lot of things wrong with this plan. It required several different generals to transfer command authority in the middle of a battle. Pavlov's men would have to pass over Inkerman Bridge, which was supposed to be repaired the night beforehand. And guess what? It wasn't. Most of the generals had just arrived in the Crimea, like most of these guys had got here in the last couple weeks, and none of them had any idea where anything was. They had no idea of the battlefield. There weren't even maps of the Crimea. But this is bonkers, right? Because this is like Russian territory. There weren't even maps of it. Okay, scratch that. There was one map. It was in St. Petersburg, and the high command refused to send it to Menshikov because it was the only one. And of course... Dannenberg, if this wasn't bad enough, Dannenberg made a bunch of last-minute changes to the plan that didn't get properly communicated and that Soymanov and Pavlov agreed to follow or they just didn't follow at all. Freaking big brains over here. Lord of mercy. But the Russians figured that if they could concentrate enough force against Mount Inkerman, the British would crack no matter what. And they might have been right, because British morale was in the gutter after Balaklava. Winter was coming, and life in the trenches around Sevastopol had become a living hell. One British sergeant described a single shift in the trenches. We had a rough 24 hours of it. It rained nearly the whole time. The enemy kept pitching shells into us nearly all night. We were standing nearly up to our knees in mud and water, like a lot of drowned rats, nearly all night. The cold, bleak wind cutting through our thin clothing. This is ten times worse than all the fighting. We are nearly worked to death night and day. We cannot move without sinking nearly to our ankles in mud. Some men hadn't taken their clothes off since landing on the Crimea two months ago. Their red coats were nearly black with grime. Paintings of these soldiers usually show these immaculate uniforms like ready for inspection. You know, the the paintings of these battles. When in reality, these guys were basically wearing rags by November 1854. Sergeant Jowett's Diary. October 31st. Very quiet since my last date, except cannonading. Duty very hard, scarcely a night in our tents. Weather very cold. November 1st. Weather still very cold. Cannonading going on as usual, on both sides, but with little effect. November 2nd. On duty last night in the 21-gun battery, at about 2 o'clock this morning. The enemy began to fire a shower of shot and shell at the parties coming to relieve us. Four of the five rifles were killed by one shell. Weather still very cold. You're picking up a theme here. The British soldiers were cold and miserable on the eve of the Battle of Inkerman. It was cold before dawn on November 5th, 1854. It had been raining for days and a massive fog blanketed the Crimea, so thick that a lot of the time you could barely see a few yards away. This fog would be one of the most important features of the Battle of Inkerman. It would shape everything, a literal fog of war. The Russian columns filed out of Sevastopol before dawn and began to ascend the muddy, slippery heights of Inkerman Plateau. The British soldiers in this sector of the battlefield had been reporting lots of movement and sound from the Russian positions all night, including the ringing of bells in Sevastopol. But these reports had been dismissed. Raglan did nothing. Raglan, do your job. So his right flank was badly undermanned. Almost 15,000 soldiers would be part of the first Russian wave, converging on the 2,700 men of the British 2nd Division atop Mount Inkerman. The British pickets were taken by surprise at 6 in the morning, when the Russian columns burst out of the fog like it was a rock concert. The British outposts fell back, small clumps of men finding cover and sniping at the big formations rippling just yards away in the fog. A massive battery of Russian artillery, eventually almost 100 guns, was set up on the northern heights and began to fire. The whistles of shells, the screams of men, and the crack of rifle volleys echoed and redounded almost invisibly through the foggy morning. The 2nd Division scrambled out of its muddy tents, threw on their ragged uniforms, and ran to the sound of guns. Elizabeth Evans watched as her husband in the fourth foot ran into the fog towards the firing, leaving her to wait with the drummer boys and pray for his survival. The Battle of Inkerman had begun. The man on the spot was General Sir John Penfather, another one of those British Brigade commanders like Campbell or Scarlett, who was much more competent than anyone in the high command. Penfather was the son of a minister, and he was kind of a unicorn because he had never purchased any rank. He had risen solely based on merit alone, especially after a legendary performance as a battalion commander in India. He knew he was heavily outnumbered, as it turned out, by six to one. So Penfather decided not to fight in the traditional line formation. Instead, he sent his units forward in platoons and companies to reinforce the picket line. This strategy maximized the advantage of the accurate long-range Minier rifle. He used the fog to conceal the small size of his force in a heavy skirmish line and hold the Russians back until reinforcements arrived. So the Battle of Inkerman began with each platoon of redcoats fighting its own battle. Penfather had no control over what was happening on the ground, but he trusted his junior officers, fed them orders, fed them reinforcements, and let them carry the fight. He wasn't thinking like the dukes or lords or princes who saw war in neat lines and formations like it was on the parade ground of their minds. He was thinking like a modern general who understood the importance of the small unit. This was the reality of Inkerman. Due to the fog, the terrain, and the chaos, command and control disintegrated. The orders of generals and princes and lords became irrelevant. In the white haze that engulfed the battlefield, where friend and foe were nearly indistinguishable, where gray shapes loomed in the fog, where noises came from nowhere and everywhere, what mattered was the man to your left or your right, your battle buddy, your sergeant, your platoon leader, This was a battle that would be fought by the small unit, alone and afraid. A battle that would go down in history with a singular title, the Soldiers' Battle. And in this kind of battle, the British seem to have had the advantage. There are lots of theories why. My personal one is that British society, unlike Russian society, encouraged independent thinking, personal initiative, and sheer gutsiness, even at the lowest level. The Russian society, on the other hand, was authoritarian, oppressive, rigid. It discouraged creative thinking or acting too far out of your station. And culture affects the way people fight their wars. In the chaos of Inkerman, the British soldier fighting on his own had the advantage on his Russian counterpart. The British skirmish line held small groups of tired, freezing, hungry redcoats firing from rocks and bushes. The Russians failed to press their attack, not realizing how small the British force they faced was. Then, General Soymanov was killed by a rifle shot. His successor, Colonel Prostovoytov, died a few minutes later. Then the next one. Then the next. The, The initial Russian assault wave lost four commanders in the space of half an hour. The Russian command disintegrated, the columns folding into masses of frightened men, hiding or fighting or running around in the fog. There were many friendly fire incidents in this battle, as you can imagine, especially from the Russians who would fire at a horde of screaming men only to realize they were firing into their own side. Some Russian units under pressure retreated, only to be met by General Kiryakov at the bottom of Mount Inkerman. He was on horseback with a whip in his hand, as drunk now as he had been at the Alma, trying to drive the men to the front, literally whipping them to the front. When he told them to go back and fight, they told him to get his own bad self up there and kept running. Raglan arrived at the front line at 7 a.m., but to his credit, something something stopped clock twice a day. He let Penfather continue to manage the battle and reinforcements were on their way. The light division rushed through the fog to the sound of guns and so did the guards brigade led by Prince George, Duke of Cambridge, the Queen's cousin. They arrived just in time. Thousands more Russian troops were ascending Inkerman heights from the east, clambering up the rocky slopes under the cover of a massive artillery barrage. Now the focus of the battle shifted to a fighting position on the British right flank, square in the path of the Russian advance, a small redoubt called the Sandbag Battery. The fighting here would be some of the most chaotic of the 19th century. As wave after wave of Russian infantry climbed up and over the parapet, The increasingly outnumbered British resisted ferociously. Private Edward Hyde of the 49th Foot remembered. They came on like ants. No sooner was one knocked backwards than another clambered over the dead bodies to take his place, all of them yelling and shouting. We and the battery were not quiet, you may be sure, and what with the cheering and shouting, the thud of blows, the clash of bayonets and swords, the ping of the bullets, the whistling of the shells, the foggy atmosphere, and the smell of powder and blood, the scene inside the battery where we were, was beyond the power of man to describe. The British were on the verge of being driven out of the battery when the Guards Brigade arrived. The Coldstreams, the Grenadiers, the Scots Fusiliers, swarmed in with bayonets, shooting at point-blank range. The Duke of Cambridge bellowed orders and tried to get them to do what he was telling them, but no one was listening to the Duke. The battle collapsed into a chaotic mess, attack and counterattack retreat, and sudden reversal, as captains and sergeants and privates took charge of the fighting. There are multiple instances of privates starting charges, privates ordering retreats, sergeants leading when the captains are killed. The British and Russian armies had been beautiful parade ground forces, with fancy uniforms and pretty lines, trained to fight in tight disciplined formation under the close eye of their aristocratic officers, the European class system in its ideal form. But in the fog and mud and blood and hell of Inkerman, all this disappeared. The ordered lines and columns were gone. The uniforms were rags. The men were covered in mud, blinded by the fog, losing all discipline and order. They smashed, stabbed, screamed, fired, clubbed, and bayoneted each other in the ankle-deep mud of the sandbag battery. Thousands of the Queens and Czar's finest troops became frenzied lunatics, throwing rocks, biting, kicking, and punching. It was madness. It was Inkerman. And in this chaos, the fate of empires, the fate of Europe, rested in the hands of the soldiers, the Tommies and the Ivans. When princes and lords and dukes and czars had neglected them, when their blue-blooded leaders had failed them, when the incompetence and failure of Raglan and Menshikov, of Dannenberg and Cardigan, of all the fancy nobles and titles had led them to this miserable freezing mud hole on the Crimea, they had to lead themselves. The captain, the sergeant, the private, what they did today mattered most of all. This was the first modern battle, the soldiers battle. If the British needed more proof that their leaders had failed, the toxic British command structure came roaring back. General Cathcart led the 4th Division to Mount Inkerman, but then he received an order from Raglan to hold his position and not leave the plateau. Cathcart responded to this order from his rival as one might expect. Well, screw you Raglan, I'm definitely leaving the plateau now. But Raglan, against Stop Clock twice a day, had given that order for a reason. When Cathcart led his men down the slopes of Inkerman in the furious counterattack, he realized that he had misjudged the size of his enemy. He'd led his men into a death trap, thanks to the fog. The fragments of his regiments had to cut their way back out, and Cathcart was shot and killed, trying to lead the retreat. But this failed counterattack left a gaping hole in the British line. Dannenberg ordered one massive push at the British position on Home Ridge. The Russians' charge led through the unearthly fog by veteran sergeants or brave junior officers. The British were falling back in every direction, under pressure from the overwhelming Russian numbers. It seemed like the battle was lost. When the Battle of Inkerman began, the French were pinned in place by a Russian force under General Gorchakov near the Balaklava battlefield. This was part of the Russian plan. Distract the French with the large Russian army on their flank and keep them from going to save the British. The closest French forces to Inkerman were commanded by General Pierre Bosquet. Remember, the best Allied General in the Crimea. He ordered his men to get ready for action, then raced off to ask the British, hey, you guys need any help? Cathcart sneered that they didn't need any help from the French. No, we have this under control. Then Cathcart went and got killed. While Bosquet waited and waited, as the clash of battle grew to the north. And as he waited, his soldiers, especially the famous colorful Zouaves, demanded to know why they weren't going to help their allies. What were they waiting for? Bosque was still watching Gorchakov's force in front of him, which was firing a few artillery shells but not doing anything serious. But they were still a huge force, and he was worried about what they would do next. But then Bosque received an urgent request from Raglan, asking for his help. He made his decision. A young officer in the first zouaves named Louis Noir remembered the soldier's impatience. The deep respect and true affection which we felt for Bosquet were tested to the limit. Suddenly Bosquet turned and drew his sword, placed himself at the head of his zouaves, his Turks and Chasseurs, undefeated troops he had known for years. and pointing his sword toward the 20,000 Russian troops, shouted in a thunderous voice, En avant, à la bayonnette. In the meantime, only 100 guards were left standing at the sandbag battery. Prince George wanted to hold to the last, but his officers persuaded them that, all glory aside, if the Russians captured the Queen's cousin or the Guard's colors, it would be a disaster for British honor. The little detachment fell back stubbornly shooting and stabbing into the fog on the verge of being overwhelmed by thousands of russian troops at that moment as the british lines were at the point of collapse general raglan and his staff turned to see a woman a vivandiere of the french army leading her regiment to battle and behind her out of the fog came general bosquet with the zouaves the chasseurs the algerians a regiment of french cavalry and even of all things the survivors of the British Light Brigade, minus Cardigan, who spent the whole battle on his yacht. Bosquet had arrived in the nick of time. The French and the Light Brigade counter-attacked. The Zouaves sprinted towards the sandbag battery. This was the kind of combat they had trained for, fighting in small units with the platoon and the company, the main unit, and they moved through the fog like they were born for it, rescuing the guards and driving the Russians all the way back down the ridge. The British and French cheered each other as they fought together. Never in the history of the world had an Englishman been so happy to see a Frenchman, or vice versa. The French pitched more and more troops into the chaos, and the tide turned. Raglan had also sent for two 18-pound siege guns, stop clock twice a day. Raglan's having a good day, I don't know what to tell you. And these two 18-pound siege guns outranged the entire Russian battery. Soon they were cutting massive furrows through the Russian lines. The Russian plan had failed, and General Dannenberg knew it. It was time to retreat. When Menshikov protested, Menshikov, who hadn't been anywhere near the battle and spent the whole thing a mile away at his headquarters, not given any orders, Dannenberg told him that if he wanted to stay and fight, he could give the order himself. This started the usual blame game in a toxic high command. Menshikov blamed Dannenberg, Dannenberg blamed Soymanov, who was dead and he was the perfect scapegoat because he couldn't defend himself. Seems like this ain't just limited to the British, huh? When the order to retreat came, the Russians scampered from the battlefield in sheer panic, but no one was ready to pursue. It had been one hell of a day. Guys, I'll remind you, I covered some of the high points of this battle, but there's a lot I'm leaving out. Inkerman was chaos. No other word for it. Corporal Jowett's Diary, November 5th, 1854. The enemy appears on our right front, in great force and shouting like madmen. Their artillery commences playing on us, and their infantry advance. A furious fight takes place which lasts the whole day, a great number killed and wounded on both sides. We kept them at bay until about 2 o'clock p.m., then the French came to our assistance, dashed in between us, and we fought side by side. I had several very narrow escapes. I was close to Sir Thomas Troubridge when his legs were struck off by a 68-pounder. The ground is covered with dead Russians, and I am sorry to say, a great many of our men likewise. The casualties were appalling. The French lost 1,726 out of around 8,000 engaged. Bad enough, almost 20%. But the British lost 2,573 out of around 7,500 engaged, a 34% loss rate, staggering numbers, almost as bad as Confederate losses at Gettysburg. The Russians lost 12,000 out of around 40,000, and officer casualties were unusually high, especially in the small units, but the British lost four and the Russians lost six generals. These were terrifying losses for only four hours of combat, almost as bad as some of the worst moments of the First World War. The Field of Inkerman told the tale. There were literal heaps of dead and dying, especially around the sandbag battery, which General Bosquet just called the abattoir. One observer reported, Some had their heads taken off at the neck, as if with an axe. Others, their legs gone from the hips. Others, their arms. And others, again, who were hit in the chest or stomach, were literally as smashed as if they had been crushed in a machine across the path side by side lay five guardsmen who were all killed by one round shot as they advanced to charge their enemy they lay on their faces in the same attitude with their muskets tightly grasped in both hands and all had the same grim painful frown on their faces fanny duberly who was noted for having a strong stomach and being a crazy war tourist refused to go out on the battlefield of Inkerman when she could see it from a distance but some women had no choice, because they had to look for their loved ones. One reporter found Mrs. Polly of the 95th Foot holding the head of her wounded husband in her lap, tending to his injuries. She said,
1: Oh, sir, you're a strange gentleman to stay here when you could get away as soon as you like.
0: Men were not the only casualties. Among the corpses was the body of one of the French cantiniers killed delivering food and water to her regiment. Inkerman had shown everyone a new kind of warfare, where old methods no longer applied, where soldiers fought on a broad, disconnected battlefield, far from the tight formations and open lines of sight of Culloden, Waterloo, or the Alma, where the birth of new technologies and the growth of different social orders required a new kind of soldier and a new kind of army, made up of small units who could fight on their own. Inkerman was not an anomaly, it was the future the first modern battle. Because at the end of the day, it was junior commanders like Campbell or Penfather, not aristocratic lords like Raglan or Cardigan, who stepped up and invented new tactics. It was leaders like General Bosque and Admiral Kornilov who treated their soldiers not like robots or tools, but like people who understood what it took to fight a modern war. It was the soldiers, not the generals, who had won or lost the battle. This was the true change taking place in the Crimean War. Europe was changing, with industrial and political and social revolutions transforming what it meant to be human, who qualified as a real person. And the best leaders on the Crimea understood what this meant for the future. From now on, all battles would be soldiers' battles. Inkerman was a Pyrrhic victory. The British army had triumphed, but it had been badly mauled in the process. A few more victories like this, and there would be no British army on the Crimea. This was symbolized when the French took over the old British positions on Inkerman, with Raglan acknowledging that he no longer had the strength to hold it. The British army on the Crimea was crippled, and the French were now the dominant partner in the alliance. But this also meant that there was no chance of another assault on Sevastopol any time soon. The Allied army was stretched too thin. There had been tentative plans for an assault pretty soon, but Inkerman put this out of the question. The Allies had to face the reality. They would be spending winter on the heights above Sevastopol. For the Russians, Inkerman was a terrible blow. It had been their last real chance to break the siege. Menshikov proposed evacuating Sevastopol, which infuriated the Tsar.
1: For what was the heroism of our troops in such heavy losses if we accept defeat? Surely our enemies have also suffered heavily. Do not submit, I say, and do not encourage others to do so. We have God on our side.
0: But Inkerman was also a serious blow to the morale of Tsar Nicholas I. His palace in St. Petersburg was moody and silent as the gloom of defeat settled on the Russian court. But Russia still had one card left to play. The Tsar knew what was coming.
1: I have two generals who will not fail me. Generals January and February.
0: When the Russian winter came, it would make Balaklava and Inkerman seemed like a vacation. Then, and only then, would everyone on the Crimea stare into the jaws of death. Next week, we will continue the story of the Crimean War. We will see how all sides cope with the winter of 1854-55. to Not well! And we will also see how the Crimean War caused massive changes in supply, transportation, hygiene, and especially the medical services, including the most famous heroine of the war, Florence Nightingale. And we will also finally catch up with the other fronts of the war, including the Caucasus, the Baltic, and even the Pacific. Not a lot of fighting, but still a lot of dying (laughs) coming up in part four. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies, especially if they're your butthole brother-in-law who hates taking orders from you. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. Or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback. What do you think about Balaclava and Inkerman? Which one would you be less happy to be in? My money's on Inkerman, but I want to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. See you next week, same place, same time for part four on Unknown Soldiers.